In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, Zoe has a fascinating conversation with Abel Imarage, a consultant and hydraulic engineer with a background in natural resource management and national, state and local water reforms. In this episode, Zoe and Abel discuss the value of citizen thinking and the unintended consequences of individuals adopting technology without thinking of it as a broader community issue, as well as how Abel sees Australia embracing the smart community concepts. Abel tells us about the concept of urban mining and why the circular economy should always be in the same conversation as smart communities, as well as why the nexus of water, energy, waste and the land is so important. Zoe and Abel finished their conversation discussing the emerging trends of information poverty, the increasing complexity of the world, the bundling of service providers, and how brokers are now becoming more common to help us navigate the increasing choices that we have. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The smart community podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Abel. How are you today? Well, thank you. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. That's so great to hear. Let's just jump straight in. And can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about? Okay. At the moment, I'm working as a consultant in the water industry. And most of my work is in strategy, policy and management, mainly in the water industry. I'm doing a little bit of work in the energy sector as well. Uh, my background is in hydraulic engineering, so I did civil and hydraulic engineering. I worked in um, regional New South Wales for about 18 years, and then uh, I've been in Queensland for about 10 years now. Most of my work is on river basins and catchments, all aspects of technical uh, natural resource management, systems operations as well. So I've worked in managing uh, river systems and running rivers and that sort of stuff. But I've also worked in corporate roles more recently. So I've sort of now migrated into advisory work, done some work in not-for-profits, private sector. I've worked for the state and local governments and I've uh, advised federal governments on water legislation, policy, and that sort of stuff. Excellent. Passionate about. What are you passionate about? Passionate about water, for sure. Yeah, water. <laughs> I think that's probably just the one area that appeals to me. I think it's partly to do with how my childhood was always in projects that related to water. But as I grew into it, I think what keeps me coming back is the unique role that water plays on Earth. Almost everything that I learn tells me just how important water is in connecting everything, pretty much living and non-living things. All the systems on this planet function because of the water cycle. So it's the host to life. And it also connects us, you know, from the past well into the future. I think everything that happens on this planet has got something to do with the water cycle. So I'm passionate about learning about water, but also how water changes life and how it makes it livable on this planet. So we can also share our experiences. That's why I'm doing this podcast, to help us sort of take care of each other and, and this planet. That's excellent to hear. What sparked your interest in this like kind of smart cities, smart community space? Okay, smart communities. I've lived and worked in many cities, small regional towns, remote towns as well, and villages in parts of India. So I've sort of got a really good interest in um, communities and, and what makes them sustainable. 
I guess when you travel or just visit a place, you get a glimpse into some aspects of these communities. But when you live and work and play in these communities, you become a part of them. You have skin in the game as to how do you keep this community living and thriving. And when you become part of the community, you feel a sense of fulfillment. So I sort of see this as the difference between going and listening to a community choir singing versus singing in a community choir. It's all the difference because you're part of it. So the smart bit, I guess, when you think of the word smart, it, it has a bit of a temporal and utilitarian sort of connotation that you know, something is a smart way of doing something. But I think when you think of the difference between smart streetlights or smart TVs, phones, cars, etc., I think when we talk about smart cities or smart communities, I, I think what we're saying is that uh, these are communities that place the emphasis on how to use all the things available to the community in a, in a wise way. And it's, I guess, what we're calling about smart. So I, my journey started, I think, when I first heard about the Earth Summit back in 1984. And it was the big catchphrase, think global, act local. And I've realized that we're all connected, cities, regions, countries are connected intricately, you know, socially, economically, and environmentally. So I think the smart communities is really about how well connected we are. So the city of Brisbane is connected with its catchments and the bay, both for resources, but also for its economy and society. We all connect with people living across the world. And a city like Brisbane, I think more and more people now have communities that are global and they're part of tribes that are planetary, global, rather than just thinking about that neighbor right next door. So that's what I think is really fascinating about the communities that we live in. We come from everywhere, we go everywhere. Our products come from everywhere and they go everywhere. So I think it is about that community much more than just a local location. Mm. You've kind of stumbled into this next question, which is what is a smart community to you? Yeah, so I think, yeah, I was sort of leading into how important it is for the people in the community when they adopt what I call citizen thinking. So it's a bit different to the reductionist way we look at ourselves or the way that people portray us. And we either classified on the basis of, are oh, you a resident of this city or you're a taxpayer or you're a customer or a beneficiary user? These are all tags that we give ourselves. So the last thing you want to be thinking of yourself when you live in Brisbane is to be considered as a Brisbane ratepayer. I think that is so demeaning. So a smart community is really one where the people have adopted citizen thinking. And that I think is the value in citizen thinking is uh, we're much more holistic. We're thinking of each other and livability. So we are understand as citizens that it's not just about my bill that's the most important thing or the land rates that are the most important thing or how long it takes me to get to work today as being the only consideration for what I consider a smart city or otherwise. Uh, it's much more about the whole system that we operate in and it's both spatial as in I should be concerned about what's happening on the edges of Brisbane as I should be about the future citizens of Brisbane. If it was all about us today, then I think uh, we're losing the plot of smart cities. So some of the decisions we're making, even in the place, in the space of smart cities, we have to be careful that a smart community is not just about today, but it's also about tomorrow. So if we go in for battery technology today, have we thought about the end of life issues with batteries? 
So that's the sort of question that makes it really interesting for me. Mm. Why is this concept so important? I think it's a matter of survival. I don't think smart cities and smart communities is just about the utopian dream. So everyone has this image or a vision of somewhere in the future, it's going to be a smart community and wouldn't it be wonderful a utopia to live in? But it's actually about the matter of survival of our society as we see it. And the vision that we have for how we might live together, uh, taking Brisbane as an example, we certainly don't want parts of Brisbane being wildly successful adopting technology and other parts of Brisbane being left behind. We're beginning to see more information uh, segregation, the power play shifting to those that have lots of information ready to hand, making good choices, and those that have little information can't make a good choice. Then you begin to see subsidies going from those that don't have it to those that have it. So we see that playing out in a lot of areas where the one with the most amount of information and can make the decision quickly gets to benefit from that whole cycle. And those that are sort of struggling with that whole concept, uh, they end up subsidizing those that do. So I think these are some of the things that are a matter of survival. If you look at cities across the world, uh, you will see that the gated communities within these cities, which you know, they've got everything they, they want because they can afford to pay for it and they've got the capability to make it happen. But then other parts of that same city are slums. And you think, what's going on here? Is that a smart city? Is that a smart community? Looking at technology, you couldn't argue they probably have the smartest technology available to parts of their society, but it hasn't benefited everyone. And therefore, even those who have everything in that city still feel our city is not up to scratch. Well, it's partly because people haven't seen that as a societal issue. A smart community is all about the entire society. It's not just about the ability to pay. So the concept of people going off-grid today, if I can afford to go off-grid and cut myself off from the network that provides the whole community with energy, then I should be aware of what the consequences are. Should there be people that are left on the system who can't afford to pay? And secondly, what happens if there's a, a big climate change event and I don't generate power? Do I then go back to the system? And so these are some of the unintended consequences of individuals within a smart community adopting smart technology, but have not having thought of it as a community issue. Uh, in the past, these were all public good services, and there was a, an inherent mix of subsidy, and people understood that that's what took to run a city. But I think we're now reached a stage where the technology is pulling us in these directions, and it's progressing so rapidly that we haven't stopped to pause and think, how are we dealing with the externalities, and what's the benefit in the long game, rather than immediately saying, well, we can do this, let's do it, and somebody's benefiting, so it must be okay. Really got to think about this a bit more carefully. So I think the concept of a smart community is worth exploring and having a shared understanding about what that means. So how do you think Australia is currently embracing the smart community concept? Okay, um, let's look at it globally first, because I think there is some relativity in, in these things. There are many smart cities uh, that sort of sprang up in the last 10 years and every sort of you know webinar you attend, people are telling us about the things that they've been doing for the last 10 years and how smart they are. And there's lots of examples of using smart technology to help one particular aspect. And it could be a big problem that they've solved, but there are some of those very same cities are struggling 
because not because the technology failed, but because there's been economic woes and political unrest. So some of the cities that were on you know, the top 10 ladder on the Smart Cities Index, they're now struggling because of these factors. And I think in the near future, we'll start seeing more cities that will be struggling because of climate change. So I think we need to sort of think about how are we embracing the smart city concept is not just about what other cities have done. So in Australia, we're good at adopting technology. So we just need to be aware that if embracing the smart city concept is all about just technology, we have to be aware that these might not be the big issues. So getting traffic to flow smoother might seem like it's the big issue in town today, but in 10 years, it may not be. So we need to think about where do we want to adopt that technology? Uh, there's some good examples of public and private sector making inroads in, in smart cities and smart communities. Energy is one good one. I think we could look at and say, what's happening in the energy sector? Australia has started thinking now about how do we get household level solar generation and how can we get that to supply the grid that's not just the old feed-in tariff arrangement but they're actually saying we can put batteries in so that we optimize the generation of that power what we haven't done is when you actually look at a map of brisbane roof uh, roof space you think you would expect to see a lot more efficiency in where the solar panels have been deployed we haven't done that as a community we've done that as pretty much the resident making a decision to put some solar panels and whatever's the best efficiency they can get for themselves is the end sum. But then when you look at it as a whole of community, smart community concept would be how would that look if there was a company or a government agency that hired the best roof spaces to put solar panels so we achieve a much higher efficiency and put that into the grid and uh, everyone benefits. So these are some of the things that I think now the government is beginning to think, how do we transition from the current private photovoltaic generation on individual roofs to become a much more optimized system for the whole? So that's one that is beginning to emerge. And I think the other bit that Australia is doing well is when we look at infrastructure bills, particularly highways, I'm beginning to see that more and more highways have incorporated fiber optics into their infrastructure, not just to help the traffic, but also to connect communities, not just you know giving them a road, but actually giving them an information highway as well. So what they're hoping is that if you provide for good communication and connectivity between these communities, they won't have to travel physically from A to B because we've also connected them using communication links. So hopefully the road will be fit for purpose for much longer. So I think that is really smart, where people have thought about mobility as a solution, but also as avoiding traffic is another solution, and you can provide both of those in the same asset. So that's sort of an example of how they're doing it. We've got a lot more in the circular, circular economy space, so in, I think there's a lot of good stuff. Brisbane is particularly on the front line. You can go and look at the cash for cans and see how the information that's being collected from the cash for cans will eventually mean that Brisbane could be a huge mine site for glass and aluminium and paper. Uh, we always think of mine sites as being some remote location in Australia, but actually done well using logistics and smart technology, uh, Brisbane should be seen as, a, as an urban mine where companies can come and say, we know where to go for what. If you want 300 tonnes of aluminium, 
we should be able to go to these particular locations and pick up aluminium, and that's our mining business, and put that back into the resource stream and have a circular economy around that. Uh, you can do that with energy as well. There's lots of uh, biomass that can be converted into energy. There's a lot of small companies that are doing that. So if you go to a restaurant on a Monday morning, this truck comes up, collects all the waste oil, takes it, converts into biodiesel, and it's available on the market. So that, to me, is a really smart community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think circular economy and smart community should really be linked in the same sector or, or you know, should be in the same sentence because where I think smart city got a lot of traction, I mean, circular economy is coming up, but actually they need to be talked about in the same context because we can't have smart communities without circular economy. Yeah, and I think we need to start talking more about how do we utilise the resources in a way that we're also thinking about how technology could improve not just efficiency but actually yeah making things circular again it's a conversation that yeah needs to happen more for sure yeah and there's really good i guess individuals that are working in this space and they've mobilized things so i think you may have heard of the circular sisters and they've started this work up in kabulja area um sorry um, Malulabai area i think yeah ashley came on the podcast actually oh excellent yeah so they're sort of really energizing people to think about this and they have the right questions that help you sort of think through how does this whole thing work. Yeah, like you said, there's a lot of kind of smaller companies in the space, but I think it'll grow significantly. And I think if you add the technology component in there, we can really push this thing forward. Yep. Excellent. So tell us about some of the projects and things that you're currently working on. We haven't actually spoken about water very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think in the area of water, for particularly for smart communities, most people see water as an input and they don't actually see it as all the things that water is needed for to make a place livable. We've actually written a book about this. Um, it's called The Utility of the Future, Future Directions, and it's available online as well. So I can connect people up to that document if they're interested. Yeah, we can put the link in the show notes. Yeah. So it talks about how important it is for us to understand how we're connected through water and water-enabled cycles. So if you think about carbon or nitrogen or phosphorus or nutrients or sediments, they're all sort of mobilized and moved around through water. So it's really important for communities to understand this flow of different resources and what we do currently in the urban water cycle component, so just the bit where we take water out of the environmental system, we abstract it and we use it for our uh, livability aspects within the city, and then we put it back into the bay. If you look at just that part, we take potable water and we use it for flushing toilets, and we bulk up, in effect, what is actually a waste product, but it contains a lot of resources. We bulk it up using water and then it becomes uh, easy to transport it in sewer pipes and then we take it to a wastewater treatment plant, we treat it, and then we spend a lot of energy to separate the water from the waste. So this is the real conundrum that we face is, first of all, we're using a very high value product, which is potable drinking water. Uh, We're using it mainly to convey waste. And then we, at the other end, we spend a lot of energy to separate out that waste from water again and make the water again as clean as we possibly can. And then we put it back into the bay. So we have to look at this paradox that we currently have where a very valuable product is being used in that regard. And the second bit, which is 
we actually generate nutrients in that waste stream, which could be used for energy, which could be used for biosolids, for agriculture. We haven't really closed that. So the circular economy principle we talked about earlier, when you look at it in the water cycle, there's amazing developments now with using biosolids for agriculture. Not the old generation where I think in China and parts of India, waste was often, uh, sewer waste was often used for agriculture. But we're now talking about state-of-the-art technology that makes it safe for use on crops, even food crops. So that's the sort of circular economy that we should be looking at. I think we were, in this document we've written about the utility of the future, we're thinking how great it would be if at the first day of spring, every house in Brisbane receives a bag of fertilizer, which is basically <laughs> thanks to you, you know, thanks to your business, <laughs> is some fertilizer that we produce from your waste. Uh, here it is. You can use it in your garden. Uh, recycled water is another valuable product. So this is that circular economy principle. So a smart community now globally has it as it, at its foundation, the nexus between water, energy, and land. That nexus is so important because the water in inputs and outputs and the energy inputs and outputs are somewhat interchangeable. You can produce a lot of clean water if you have unlimited source of energy, but that's not necessarily a smart thing to do. So we do want to think about how do you manage supply and demand? How do you conserve water? How do you conserve energy? And then when you think of land, which produces food, fiber, fuel, ecological services, this nexus between these three things is the most important thing that a smart community needs to be thinking of. Where's our water coming from? How much do we use? How can we conserve this? If a smart toilet could be designed which uses energy rather than water to treat it at source, so every house might have a, a modular toilet, a bit like what you might have seen in the Martian the movie. So on this spaceship, he has this unit which produces fertilizer, and it's all through energy, using energy to dry it out, and the moisture then goes back into his uh, water system and so on. Technology is just around the corner, so there's a lot of investment going on to these things. And what I've seen is some developing countries have actually leapfrogged us in using this technology because they went from having no toilets to the next generation toilets because resources are scarce. We, I guess the strange thing for us is we've evolved with the technology, but now we've got locked into this current paradigm of, oh, we just need to have huge networks of pipes going everywhere, taking all our waste, treating it, and hopefully treating it well, and then dumping it into the bay, and that's all we know. But some of these communities in the developing world, they've leapfrogged it, so they get energy, they get water, they get nutrients out of the system. So to me, that's a technology-driven solution. We should be looking at how can we transition, and I think that's possibly getting into the next question is, how do we get this thing to happen? How do we transition from where we are today, waiting it to be? And uh, that, I think, is really the sort of thing that you want to co-design with communities. This shouldn't be seen as a government backing a horse, which is a technology solution, but rather working with communities and saying, these are all the elements that make for a good community. How do you think we should take this technology and what should be the transition arrangement from where we are today to where we should be in 20 years? That is really how you create integration. I don't think it can be just through legislation saying, oh, you have to work with this company or this company. That's not how it works. You have to have this as a grassroots solution because ultimately, 
the cost of the transition and how long you take the benefit out to is dependent on how well the community understands why we're doing this. And it's, I think, more than just information. I mean, people know a lot of things these days and almost anything is readily accessible, but it's just understanding why and what the program looks like to transition from today to where we want to be. Mm-hmm. I think that's a perfect example. Yeah, technology and the circular economy aspect of that. I think it's so true when you talked about how we progressed to a certain point and then that progression, we got locked into that. Like our thinking is, oh, well, our toilet must look like this and this is what it does. And then it goes to a pipe and then we've got this whole network. We've invested in this infrastructure. Therefore, we will use it. And I think, yeah, you're so right. There's a lot of examples of that you know, roads and the like as well. And I think, yeah, how do we, first of all, start this thinking and then bring in the community as well? Yeah, I I think the good thing about it is people are working on these sort of plans and hypotheticals as to how would it look if you use this technology. The great thing is our ability to simulate these sort of scenarios, again, through computing power is immense. People play any game that is like the SimCity or any of those games, you sort of understand there are some simple models on which you can play that game, but it helps communities to understand the broad principles of what are the levers in this game? You know, what what is the cause and effect? Do I understand that enough to play the game well? And I think that's the sort of thing that technology can actually allow us to do. So if you want to change from the network solutions to decentralized solutions, modular sort of solutions. You can actually work through that and synthesize people's understanding so that you, know, you can develop a bit of a transition plan and say, well, you, know, you understand why we're doing this and how we're doing it and what are the you know, upsides and downsides to it. And then the game should be about the long term, as in why we're doing this, but can you actually survive to that long term at every point in the game. So you don't get knocked out because you've done something too ambitious or you've gone past the tipping point for your environment or your economy. So that's the sort of capability we do have now to engage the community in these sort of questions and transition planning. I think that participation model is lacking at the moment. So you'll come across, particularly you, Zoe, you'll come across a lot of really amazing people working in this sort of area. But everyone's sort of trying to make it work despite the system, whereas we really need to be thinking, what is the participation system or participatory model for people to engage in these things? Almost everyone agrees these are great things, but there is no vehicle for us to get onto. And that partly is the leadership that needs to come from governments to say, we realize this is a hard thing. We're going to co-design the solution. And a co-design solution is partly about the vision, where we want to go, but also about how we transition to that point. That's really what we should be pushing for. I think that leads perfectly onto this next question, which is how do you think we can better integrate across the different disciplines, governments, industries? So I think um, everything is actually available. The elements, the building blocks for getting to a good community, smart community, they are there. It is getting that human element into it now. So beyond the academic understanding of what a smart community looks like, is how do we engage the communities in this? And I think we've sort of been looking at different aspects of it. And I think people are genuinely pleased when 
something good like this happens. There's a lot of people that think, oh, now that we've got something like Cash for Cans, it's great. It opens up another opportunity to grow our society economically. So there's going to be some development because we can get some resources back into the system. But also socially and environmentally, it's a good thing. So I think that's the sort of stuff that can become the catalyst for integrating different disciplines, governments, and industries. So often you need to have something like that, which is a bit of a spark. But if it's thought through really well, then it can really integrate things. And then, you know, success breeds success. So we now need to be thinking, so what beyond cash for cans? Should we be looking for the urban mining exploration permits? Uh, should we be looking at mining permits for Brisbane? So companies start thinking, so what can we get from here? What's available in the city? How can we collect it? How can we process it? How can we get it back into the resource cycle? How can we make money? How can we employ people? So once that question comes in, then integration begins to happen. So they will then connect up the whole ecosystem of suppliers, processes, logistics companies, marketing, plus the government needs to make it happen. So these are the sort of things that, you know, really excite me. <laughs> so they're all part of what I call the transition planning. So we need to map out. So what could we piggyback on this cash for cans? What would that look like? And I think it's a generational thing as well. So it's really good when schools get involved in these sort of projects because these these kids who are in year seven now in 10 years time they're going to be the movers and shakers and when they get these sort of foundational skills this is how the system works and this is how i can create some value you're able to sort of keep that transition planning going far more adaptively than we can i'm keen to hear a bit more about this urban mining term, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me, but can you just explain it a little bit further? Okay. It's not new, uh, as in we've had, I guess, the, the old term was waste concessions. So cities often, uh, particularly in Asia or Europe, they have what are called waste concessions, which is basically the contract to take waste away. What you do with it then is to a large extent uh, regulated or if there's a business decision you make and say, oh, we can extract this particular item and recycle it, then it's up to the party, the contracted party to do that. So in effect, cities have been thinking about, well, we need to deal with a certain issue. And if we don't deal with it, then it becomes a health hazard. Waste is not removed. So you think of it in that sense. But what I was saying is about urban mining, this actually should be seen as an opportunity so the information that we now have, uh, most data analytics companies can tell you to the nearest 10 tons how much, say, recyclable aluminium enters that particular area and leaves it. So it's actually a case of understanding these resource flows and on the basis of that, making a decision as to is it more appropriate that rather than opening a new mine, somewhere that you actually look at these waste flows and say we can substitute or perhaps even just supplement those resource flows using the material that's already made its way into the city. So make that an active proposition and put that up as a tender and say we have the ability to extract so many tons of material. As an example, I think New York City out of the sewage waste extracts about 3 million dollars worth of gold each year. Now, 
Uh, that's not a lot, but it's a single point, which means if you have the right technology, you should be able to extract that, and it's far more certain that that's what you're getting. But more importantly, it's the avoided cost of not having to open a mine. There's no attendant risks of mining associated with that particular set, amount of gold. So these are all the things. Then e-waste is another one. That, so these are the things that you would do today for a variety of reasons as a source of materials, but also avoided cost, both in terms of landfill as well as mining, and also a future issue that at the moment we don't cost it. So we normally analyze tips on the basis of how much time we have left on that tip. But we haven't thought about the, I guess, the longevity of that tip. We will always have that tip there as long as it's got waste material in there. We haven't thought about if we avoid putting certain amount, certain types of waste in there because we've mined it out, then that tip can be reused for other things or it has a much shorter time span before you, know, you need to go and fix it. So these are some of the issues that are associated with urban mining. That's why you do it. So it's not a new concept other than you turn it from a, a proposition of solving a problem to one of opportunity. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. It's, I think, even though not a new concept, but now with technology, again, you can really take advantage of that waste stream or, you know, aluminium or that type of thing. So it's, yeah, so much opportunity in that space. Exactly. And I think that's the sort of thing that we should be creating more opportunities in because you just sort of triggered my thinking just a little bit there, Zoe, when you said, the ability for us to do things today because of digital technologies is immense. We have a lot of capability. We need to be applying that capability for good things because in the lack of that, if there aren't these sort of opportunities, people to say, I'm a, I'm a data whiz. I know how to do this stuff. And here's an opportunity for me to put all my capability into doing something useful. Guess what? If those opportunities don't exist, then all we end up with is possibly just more games. <laughs> All that capability is just going into what I would call as second order or third order things for society rather than the first order issues. We should be getting all these brilliant minds to engage in the issues around uh, climate change, waste, creating opportunities for them to apply that information, that knowledge, skills, capabilities. And a lot of startups have these ideas, again, but there's no participatory model for them beyond uh, somebody's going to help me develop an app. Oh, well, apps are good, but you really need to connect that app into a whole ecosystem. So you need to think of, if I was creating the mining industry today and there didn't exist anything, how what would it look like? And that's where you start. Actually, I can bring a lot of people into my new venture. It's called an urban mine, whatever it is. Yeah, no, that that's kind of triggered my thinking as well, which... We've got brilliant people that, that, okay, so I'm going to, you know, make a game because then I can sell it and make money or whatever. And I think games are important and that type of thing. But also if you then take the learnings from that into the real world, you can actually be solving real problems. But there has to be that, that availability there, that participatory approach with the government because these guys and girls are building these things, you know, in the virtual world. And if they could help governments or whatever build it in the real world or however it would kind of work, like a, I mean, one, a smart community thing to do, but two, like you said, using those brilliant minds for something that's 
real world and going to save the planet. Okay, let's go on to the next question, uh, which is what are the emerging trends that people aren't talking about enough? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess that's the hardest question because, you know, almost everything is being talked about. And I, I don't mean that in a deprecatory sort of way, but there's a lot of talk. And there's certainly talking up investment opportunities, but we aren't talking about the sort of risks and downsides with a lot of things that are happening today, particularly the social disruption, alienation, disparity in information. So there's information poverty now, which has become, I guess, a big risk in understanding how people can get opportunities to be fulfilled in society. So these, there are some trends that are emerging now we need to be careful about. And I think that is a complex one. And that whole complexity itself in the scenarios that as different megatrends begin to have you know, sort of a compound effect. So there's the juxtaposition of population growth and where they live in often low-lying floodplains or coastal areas. Then you have the climate variability trends also sort of combining the impact. So when you have another event, there's more people affected today than there would have been, say, 10 years ago. And you think, well, what's going on? Well, there's more people wanting to live there. So I think these are some of the trends that are beginning to make the rounds, particularly when people are thinking about how do I plan for the future? There's an increasing complexity trend. The other bit is uh, how quickly disruption sort of changes everything, but also how brief some of the disruption is. So things that we thought were going to be groundbreakers and you know changing the world sort of stuff, and then five years later, they're, they're just nowhere. Not because they've been overtaken by something, but because people go, well, that was a not, not a good, good outcome, so we've decided to sort of move on. And the trend also of the increasing lag between the innovation and the capture of true benefit for society. So innovation is introduced, and some people benefit, Sometimes it's the user of that innovation, and sometimes it's the owner or the shareholder in that innovation. But society as a whole is still waiting for the true benefit from some of those things. So, and that's not because you know, it just takes a long time for those benefits to occur, but it's because the model on which they've based it hasn't captured the externalities, particularly if you decide to build a new asset and that asset is supposed to be for the benefit of um, the users. Uh, so I'll give you an example. If you think of these electric scooters, and you think, well, that's got to be a good thing, isn't it? On the surface of it, yes, it would be. But if you did a whole-of-life assessment of those things, I think uh, that's when we would have to be confident that these things are really good. And you can then plan the whole mobility solution incorporating these things. But if it's just an adjunct to what, the city is already planned, then you think, well, is this going to actually detract from the other solution? We don't know that yet. So all I'm saying is that we are beginning to get disruption running a parallel economy, and we pay for getting the main infrastructure in, and then at the same time, the private sector or some individual is putting out an alternative part, also capturing some of the benefits. So these are some of the issues in that there's a diversity in everyone wanting to create some value, 
but I think often it comes at the cost to the other solution. So we're not getting the whole of societal benefit yet. I think the other bit that is emerging now is the shared economy. So just as we have the circular economy, the shared economy is a classic case where in the transport area, uh, it was the first cab off the rank, but the mobility as a service concept is growing. So you don't need to own a car to be mobile. You don't even need to own a bike anymore to be mobile. You can use a city bike. You don't even need to own a scooter anymore. You can use a shared scooter. We're beginning to see the same thing in accommodation, particularly in community housing. Obviously, the accommodation as a service is emerging. But in a generation, we might see accommodation as a service extending beyond the homeless to potentially those that can't afford housing at all or those that would actually prefer not to own an asset uh, like a house because it gives them more mobility and flexibility. So these are some of the things, the trends that are emerging, but it needs to be incorporated into the whole shelter and accommodation plan that we as a growing community need to have. In the absence of that, you'll find that more and more units are being built, but that has got nothing that's uh, connecting it with the needs of the community where we should be actually saying, well, if you're building more houses and here's the small people without a house, how are we going to reconcile this issue? So this is what I mean by parallel processes of value creation haven't really been brought together. The other trend I think you're probably also aware of is bundled services. If you look at the choice that we have at the moment, and even though there are lots of brokers who claim to make your choice a lot easier because they can analyze all the products on offer and give you the best value for money and all you have to do is just click on your thing and you you know it's all sort of self-regulated and all that sort of stuff. It's still a very complex world out there because the number of choices that you have is huge. So brokerage is becoming increasingly common where uh, particularly the next generation. So Zoe, you might be in that where you might not be interested in wasting a lot of time looking for the best deal for water or electricity or waste or transport. You might just say, look, I have a certain bundle of services that I need and who can best provide that? And they will be looking for the best solution for you with the possibility of changing the mix depending on how you're traveling against your contract. So you might even have a holiday thrown in there. It just depends on what the bundle service providers are able to do. So as more data sets get aligned, then the ability for best value for the end user can be created. Now, I temper all this by saying uh, we have to be careful not to just run away with this thing because if all that happens is those that don't, aren't making the right decision are simply subsidizing those that have made the right decision. And that's simply because of you know technology giving some people an advantage versus the others. Then I think we're losing the plot. So we just need to be conscious that in a technology-driven solution, we have the ability to check for these unintended consequences. So there's some of those things. So I think we're beginning to see more and more of people stepping into this role. And we're beginning to see also that the algorithms that they've developed can work against societal benefits. So this, I think it's a good thing that people have started thinking about these issues and saying, we, we are very skeptical that this broker is actually doing the right thing for society as a whole. It might be benefiting some individuals, but not as a whole. 
Excellent. It's been so great to talk with you, Abel. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. My pleasure. Now, I really just have one last question, which is how can people connect with you? Okay. Best way would be on LinkedIn. I'm usually pretty good with going on to LinkedIn and connecting and understanding where people are at. And I can also, once we're linked in, give you some access to other things that I'm doing at the moment, projects that might be of interest in the area of smart communities. So I'm more than happy to respond to any LinkedIn requests for connecting up. Sounds great. I'll put the links in the show notes so people can click away and find you. Thanks again. Thanks, Zoe. No, thanks for coming on to the podcast. It's been great. Okay. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community or find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter at smartcompod. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears, so thank you in advance. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. 